You speak, we listen. Conversations connecting people. This is the Chuck Williams Show. Dr. Lewis, thank you for agreeing to sit down for this podcast. I know you don't do a lot of these, and I really appreciate you coming in and sort of having a conversation with us. My pleasure. Thank you for the invitation, Chuck. Let's start with telling people a little bit about you. Um, you know, you're the superintendent of one of the largest school districts in the state of Georgia, but you're not a Georgian. No. Native Floridian? I am. Uh, tell me a little bit about where you grew up and kind of what your interests were when you were growing up. Oh, I grew up in Clearwater, Florida. I was raised there uh, with my mom and dad um, and my brother, Greg, uh, who's five years younger than myself. And uh, had a great childhood. Uh, my dad was a brick mason, and my mom was a homemaker. And I'm the first of any on either side of our uh, of my family to uh, attend and graduate from college. Uh, so that was a big aspiration my parents had for me and my brother. And uh, our interests were um, athletics. We played football, uh, baseball, uh, and uh, of course um, band. Something that I went on to uh, make a profession. Well rounded. Um, uh, where'd you go to college? Went to uh, Florida Southern College in Lakeland, and then went on and got my master's degree and two two master's degrees actually, one in uh, uh, in music education, and then one in educational leadership, and then completed my doctorate. So it sounds like at least professionally, the music side won over the athletic side. I mean, tell me a little bit about your athletics. Did you play high school sports, but you didn't play at college? I mean, right, uh, high school sports. I wasn't uh, wasn't a switch hitting catcher, so <laughs> but I, w- I was a catcher in baseball, and that's what I played. Enjoyed that position. Played that position all the way through. Uh, played linebacker in high school, um, and uh, just really enjoyed all the sports. Uh, but that kind of led into some officiating opportunities that I had. I really enjoyed the officiating aspects of the, of the game. And uh, then from there, had an opportunity for a music scholarship uh, in, um, uh, to go to Florida Southern College, and, and uh, my principal instrument was trombone. So Florida Southern's a, a really good school. It's a, I mean, it's very similar in some ways to Troy University, where I graduated from, kind of a regional draw university. Mm-hmm. Um, you you were talking about the opportunities that uh, to get the music scholarship. So you majored, majored in music education. I did. Just like many of the kids at Columbus State University are doing right now, right? Absolutely, yes. I mean, that's, I mean, music education, you know, at a school that really, I don't think they had a football team back yeah. then, did they? So in very, it, it, it was almost an apples-to-apples apples comparison to right. CSU. Right, liberal arts college. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, What's the focus of music education when you don't have a marching, a football marching band and some of the other aspects? It becomes a lot more academic in ways, doesn't it? Well, it does, but uh, again, with music education and music in general, you get a chance to spend a lot more time really working on the craft of, of music. Uh, we had great uh, professors there, and uh, even though we didn't have a marching band there, we had great marching bands around uh, us in, in terms of high schools, so certainly had the experience, and of course, my high school band was extremely good, so I had that experience behind me as well. How'd you do football and band together? Uh, well, that was interesting. Uh, played... Um, First half, about two minutes before halftime, just took off the shoulder pads, went out and played um, the trombone during halftime, came back in, put the pads back on, and went back out and played the second half. Did any of the guys on the other side taunt you or kind of, <laughs> did you have to get any fights for that? Not, not really because we actually had several players that did that. We had a large band, about 250 members in the band, and our football team was very good too. So in that respect, we were pretty well respected all the way around. 
Sounds like you had a very understanding football coach because a lot of coaches would see that as a distraction they may not want. What high school did you go to, and who was your coach that allowed something like that to uh, happen? Coach Brown and uh, with the Clearwater High School, and we were very competitive, played well, uh, but he was understanding. And back, back, back then in Clearwater High School, it was a very large high school. Later it broke into two high schools uh, uh, because of the size. It was a huge high school. Uh, but there was a lot of understanding about the need to share. Uh, back then, there was a real important uh, importance and an understanding between the coaches that uh, you wanted to share athletes. You weren't just a baseball player, just a football player, just a basketball player, as uh, sometimes you see these days. Uh, but uh, they wanted you to play as many sports and develop as many muscle groups as possible, and, and the same thing applied for band. Uh, people wanted our kids, to the kids in that school, to have as many opportunities as possible so they could explore what they wanted to do and become really good at. Did that shape you late, years later as an educator? Absolutely. I think it's absolutely essential that kids have uh, the opportunity to explore as many opportunities as they want uh, to find out what they really hope to achieve and do in the life, either whether it's professionally, vocationally, or just avocationally. I see so many kids that uh, uh, I went to high school with that went on. They may not have been band directors or professional musicians, but they still played in community bands or orchestras and that kind of thing. So I think that's the kind of thing about developing a well-rounded uh, student that eventually goes on to contribute in the community as well. I mean, you can see that in Columbus. Absolutely. You, I mean, the Columbus Symphony Orchestra is a very, very talented group of musicians. Well, and we have community groups here that continue to play, whether it be in church or, uh, you know, some of the community orchestras and bands. So it's extremely important to keep that uh, moving forward in the community, that tradition. Why is music important in an educational setting? Well, it, it fosters and garners creativity. Uh, that I think is so important. No matter what profession you go into, you're going to uh, be well-received if you can be creative, problem-solve, teamwork, all the things that, just like sports, uh, music uh, tends to uh, prompt and to continue to foster uh, throughout your life. So I think the whole idea of creativity, innovation, discipline, uh, and teamwork, those are all factors that I think are so important in music that uh, transcend into, the, uh, into your uh, workplace and into your personal life. And it's not just music. It's it's the performing arts and the other art, the creative side. I mean, and I'll get into this a little later, but, I mean, one of your crowning achievements here had to be the superintendent that opened the Rainey McCullers uh, School for – School for – what's School the, for the Arts. School for the Arts. School for, yeah. I mean, that has – you know, when you opened that school as a superintendent, I know that had been in the works long before you got here for years, but you were the guy that got to – to finalize it and to open it, that had to be an incredibly rewarding experience for you as a superintendent and somebody who values the arts to open that school. Well, it really was. I really enjoyed it, Chuck. But I it also brought along with it some pressure because I, this had been something that people had envisioned uh, for 10, 15 years prior to my arrival, uh, both in terms of funding and, and seeding it, but also envisioning what it would be. So there's a lot of pressure with that. And um, But all, all said, I'm very proud of the school that it has become and is going to become because it take, typically takes about 10 years for a school like this to really ingrain itself in, in the uh, culture of the school district but also in the community. And uh, Rainy McCullers will certainly do that for us going forward. It's starting to do that now. It is, absolutely. I mean, you're, you're seeing that, that now. You know, it's interesting when you talk about athletics and arts uh, during the exit interview I did with Dr. Frank Brown when he was leaving as the president of Columbus State University, 
I asked the question that every reporter, and I was at the ledger at the time, every reporter had asked him, and I'd asked him a hundred times. So, are you disappointed you were never able to put a football team on the field at Columbus State? He looked at me and he goes, Chuck, I'm surprised. And I'm paraphrasing, but not by much. <laughs> he said, Chuck, I'm surprised. You haven't seen our football stadium? It is spectacular. The finest one in the state and one of the finest in the country. I'm like, Dr. Brown, you don't have a football stadium. He said, you've been to the River Center for the Performing Arts? <laughs> you know, in right away. story. You have never heard? I have not heard that story. It, he, that was the way he couched it. And it was like, listen, we may not have done this, but we did this, and we did it in a spectacular way. Right. And I always – but it was the arts. He was – he was talking about the investment in the arts. And that's clearly what's happening, you know, in K-12 here as well. Well, I'd like to think so. We, we have a ways to go. we got to rebuild some of our van programs and, and continue to develop our music programs. But uh, I'm very pleased overall with where we are. We have some good people in place, and it will just continue to, to grow. Unfortunately, this past year was really difficult for everybody, but particularly for uh, some of our arts programs, for example, beginning band students, they didn't have the opportunity to, to get started like most students do every year. So we're going to have to make up some for some lost time. Yeah, and the bands have been on a slide in Muscogee County School District and across this area for for several years. I know Central still has a pretty big number band. I know Carver's band has still got numbers. Some of the others have, have slid from – have decreased from their previous days. How do you get kids interested in marching band now? Well, I think, again, it goes back to uh, developing a sense. Kids want to belong to something, whether it's uh, music groups, whether it's sporting uh, sports teams. Uh, by nature, they inherently typically want to belong to a group, and that's why it's so critically important for us to have um, recreation, recreational sports and activities uh, in the community, but also in our schools and quality programs that they want to become a part of. And, you know, that I mean, extracurricular activities are incredibly important whether they be athletic or, you know, math club. I mean, any number of things. I mean, the, one of the really cool things, I think we did a story on not long ago, were these po poetry slams. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're, they're doing that in the schools, right? Right. Um, well, and it, it evolves, too. Uh, robotics has become such an amazing opportunity for kids. And uh, for give you some example, we, had, uh, we started robotics teams about four or five years ago. We had five of them. We have now have 50, uh, 56 of them. Every school. Every, every school has one, at least one. Some have two. I want to get back into some of that in a minute, but I want, to, I want to switch back out. When you came out of Florida Southern, you stayed in Lakeland, right, in, or in, the, that in, the general, in that general area. Mm -hmm. And you began as a band director and a teacher. And, but you didn't give up your athletic side. You, you were talking about you officiated. Did you officiate basketball and football? Uh, football, baseball, primarily. And, okay, one of the things a lot of people don't know about you is you were a professional umpire for a number of years. What, three or four years? A couple of years, yeah. Two, oh, two, two and a half, two and a half, almost three. And you um, you were an umpire in Class A professional ball. You did some spring training. Collegiate, mm -hmm. collegiate games. You did some spring uh, – you were sub sometimes in spring training Correct. major league games. Mm -hmm. First of all, what did you enjoy about umpiring? Being close to the game, being a true part of the game, 
uh, getting to see some really great talent that you could see was going to be moving up the ranks into the major leagues. You can almost identify them early on. Do you remember some of the kids you saw? I do. I can't. Uh, some of them, most of them were the D Dominican players that we saw because a lot of the time that was like a pipeline coming into the Florida State League, as you might imagine. Uh, but we saw some of the uh, like Cabreras and some of those that were coming up through the through the ranks. So several of them. In fact, I had one uh, funny story about that. I ca called a guy out on strike three, and he looked at me and said, "You're a good umpire. You learned to make that uh, call that pitch. You could, you could go to the major leagues." I said, "You learned to hit it. You'll go with me." <laughs> You know, but being a former catcher, you are comfortable behind oh. the plate making. I mean, you know, you know, not everybody is com. I mean, not everybody's comfortable behind the plate with a ninety-five mile an hour fastball yeah. coming at them, and, and a lot of confidence in the catcher sitting in front of you with a piece of leather on his hand. Right. You know, you were telling me another story. We were talking about your umpiring days. Uh, that you know, sometimes you can accomplish what you want to without being the center of attention. Um, and you told me a story about how you ran a pitcher one time and you never had to throw him out of the game. Would you mind sharing that story? Well, yeah, uh, I noticed there were some things happening to the baseball that just weren't natural. Uh, Which is what one of the problems in the major leagues right today. Now. Yep. Right now. And um, as time went by, I just started noticing it was pitch after pitch. And, and um I told the uh, catcher, I said, you go over and tell the manager, if he comes back out the next inning, I'm going to run him. And he never showed back out the next time. He brought in some from the bullpen. So it, it worked. And, and, and you're right. Sometimes, you know, you, there are times when you have to be demonstrative on, on a call or, or something like that. But oftentimes it's, it's, it's the nuances. You don't want to show somebody up. You want to try and give them a chance to do the right thing. And I like to think that was one of them. Umpiring requires thick skin mental alertness, and an ability to forget what just happened and focus on the next thing. What did you learn through umpiring that you carried on into your career as an educator and later as a superintendent? You just named the three of them. <laughs> but, yeah, but it is. It's great tra it was great training because <clears throat> one thing you always learn in umpire school, you're only as good as your last call, no matter how great – uh, you may have done last year, last month, whatever. You know that when you're dealing with with people's children, the three things I, I deal with on a regular basis that are critically important and I have to keep in mind is, uh, and people are always passionate about, I'm dealing with their children, their property by way of their taxes, and their money. One way or the other, all three of those intersect at my desk every day. And they're passionate about all three. But as an umpire, you get the same thing. You have to make a, make a snap decision sometimes. You make a call, and you move on. You can't dwell on it. <clears throat> uh, you just got to move on and uh, make the call with the best information at the time. Were those years of umpiring valuable to you? Oh, they were fun. They were valuable. Uh, they taught me a lot of life lessons, some of the things we're talking about here. So absolutely. I mean, I got to intermix with some really great guys that went on to become major league umpires. And uh, so it was great. Frank Pulley, uh, some of those guys that went on to become great major league umpires. And, and I got a chance to work with them. And sometimes I could tell what's going to happen on the field next, but just based on my relationship with them and what I saw them, how they responded and reacted in certain situations. And you got to, it's a phrase that you hear people say, worth the ump. You got to see coaches and managers work the ump. Mm -hmm. that's, a, that's, a, 
that's a skill set that you really, unless you've been out there, you don't really understand because they don't really care about the call you may have just missed or that went against them. They're trying to get the next call, right? Right, absolutely. And and um, I, I was working third base in a, in a game, and we happened to have Sparky Anderson was the manager of the Reds back at the time. A Hall of Fame manager. Absolutely. And a um, uh, call was made against one of his players, and, and he was really on the umpire. And uh, the umpire, who happened to be Frank Pulley, and Frank came over to me in between innings, and he said, I'm going to dump him next inning. He said, watch this. And this, of course, a spring training game, so it wasn't anything, you know, no high stakes or whatever. But uh, a pitch came in low on one of his hitters, and he called a strike. And Anderson starts barking from the dugout, and pretty soon another one comes in. Uh, I think it was high or something like that. He called a strike, and Anderson came darting out of the dugout. Pulley said, you take one more step, and you're gone. Anderson stopped, thought a minute, started walking toward the dugout, and he said, that's the one, and he ran <laughs> in. <laughs> My favorite baseball story of Vile Sparky Anderson. I used to go to Lakeland to watch Tigers oh, yeah. games. But uh, when Sparky Anderson retired, he retired to California, and mm-hmm. he spent many years as a Detroit Tigers skipper. And he was also a gardener. He was a, he did a, he was a very, very good gardener. And when they were tearing down old Tiger Stadium, uh, the – Clubhouse guy called him up and said, hey, Skip, you can have anything you want out of here. What do you want me to send you from Tiger Stadium when we start tearing it down? And (laughs) Anderson's response, get ready, you might need the flicker on this. Uh, Now, Anderson's response was he asked for the urinals in the visitor's clubhouse. And the guy says, why do you – he was going to use them as planters. He said, why do you want the urinals in the visitor's clubhouse? And Anderson's response was, can you think of how many Hall of Famers use those things? <laughs> <laughs> and that, 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 yeah. that became my favorite baseball story. Yeah. But, you know, let's <laughs> – sorry, I didn't mean to That's hijack right. my own podcast. <laughs> uh, but, you know, baseball in a lot of ways, not just dumping it, but playing it and watching it, Baseball, a baseball season has a flow to it, mm-hmm. much like, you know, a school season. An ebb and a flow. <laughs> yeah, it does have an ebb mm-hmm. and a flow, much like an academic year. Yeah. I mean, you know, and those are advantages you get when you are in the game like that, and then you go into life, and, you, I mean, you've got an, I mean, I would say a 10-month ebb and flow academic year, but all that's changing mm-hmm. now. Um, so you end up working a, a full career, in uh in Florida, um, it's time to retire, and you start looking for superintendent jobs. What about Columbus, Georgia, attracted you? Well, several things, frankly, um, and uh, there were a couple of uh, other cities who had asked me to consider uh, applying for jobs. Uh, Headhunter had contacted me about several others, and this was the first one I was uh, made aware of. And uh, I've shared this story before. Um, uh, we came up here to check it out before we ever made final application. You and your wife, Karen. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, and our daughter, did. Stephanie, actually, at the time. We came Who had just school. graduated from high school, yeah, right? Yeah, right. She was going to uh, Jacksonville State to play uh, uh, softball there, Division One softball there. So anyway, we, we came up here, and I remember distinctly uh, going to uh, – we stayed what was, the, uh, at that time, a Hampton Inn um, – over in the Midtown area, and um, 
right across from Macon Road. You didn't announce your visit to anybody? I did not because I wanted to check out things for myself without having any, I guess, any preordained ideas or predestined ideas about anything. So we came up here. I, uh, we went uh, very next morning. We went, happened to go to the Dunkin' Donuts, met Philip, who still works there on uh, the Dunkin' Donuts on Macon Road. I asked him, so how do you like Columbus? And he was just one of the best ambassadors for Columbus you could ever ask for. He talked about how much he loved the city, he loved the people, and so on. I then went over to uh, Carver High School, uh, found Carver High School, beautiful school. It had j- it just been built. It had just been built, uh, I think within a year. Yeah, it was fairly And new. there were some uh, guys playing basketball, and, and I asked them how they liked the school and how they liked the school district, and they were very complimentary. And I, then I went to the school district office itself, which was central registration, and uh, didn't which then was Brown Avenue, or was it still? No, it was still. It was at, at Macon's, uh, on Macon Road, okay, right okay. where it is now. Went into the central registration, uh, just talked to folks and said, we're thinking about moving here. Tell me about the school district. And It wasn't. We're thinking about moving here, and I may be your boss. No. It was, nope. wow. Yep. And uh, did all the reconnaissance. Uh, went down and saw the River Center downtown. Just, and of course, being arts people, my wife is a 32-year choral director, uh, musician uh, as well, and uh, just fell so in love with the community from the arts perspective because we knew where we were going to move. We wanted to be close to, to Steph, but by the same token, we wanted to be a community that we felt like we could really put down roots, really feel a part of, get involved with, not just from a job standpoint, but from a personal standpoint long term as well. And so with all that, uh, we just at that point made the decision to make the application and go from there. As somebody who appreciates the arts, and you walk in and you see the River Center, you see the Springer Opera House, you know, you see this kind of theater district in the most unlikely of places. Um, What did that say to you about Columbus? Well, two things I think I need to really say that impressed me about Columbus was that, first of all, just if they are that committed to the arts and to the longevity of places like the Springer, the, the tradition that it has, and then you saw on one block the tradition of the Springer, and then over here the River Center, just a, another block over, it's just so impressive to see the, the uh, true commitment to the arts that people are willing to invest, truly invest in a facility like that was amazing. But the other part was when uh, my wife and I, first drove up and saw the school district. And I know the Taj Mahal and all the things that are talked about that. But what that said to us is this community cares about public education. It was a testament to this community's uh, appreciation for public education and its uh, commitment to public education. And that investment continues today through the way of the East Blast and other things that uh, you just don't see many other places. So facilities matter. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, When you look at, and it doesn't have to be a brand new facility, it's how people take care of what they have and the way they, um, you can look at the churches we have here in our community, the synagogues, the churches, uh, they're all maintained. Uh, One of the things that we did not see much of at the time and haven't seen a whole lot of since, but we don't see a lot of vandalism. Where I came from, uh, a city of this size, just about every building would be bearing some form of vandalism. Graffiti. Graffiti. Uh, some of the light fixtures we have here down along the river walk, those would have been uh, uh, destroyed, broken, one thing or another. We just don't see that here, and I would like to think that is uh, a, symbol, uh, a symbol of the way people respect 
uh, our community. Now, does that mean everybody does? Obviously not, but it, but people take care of it. And if something like that were to happen, they get out and they get it cleaned off and take care of it. And that's that's important. That's a sense of value and a sense uh, of uh, tradition and a caring for a community that um, I hope Columbus doesn't take for granted. You know, and as a, it, sometimes it takes an outsider to see things we don't see, those of us who've lived here 35 years plus. You know, it's interesting you talk about the, the theaters and stage. One of my favorite stages in this whole city is the Jordan High School Auditorium. Mm-hmm. It is a beautiful, beautiful auditorium. It is. I'm very proud to say that once again, thanks to the citizens uh, voting for the East Plus, we were able to take it back, we think, pretty close to its original state uh, just in the last few years. I know the Jordan alumni are very pleased and proud of it, as, as in fact they should be. And that that stage has produced a lot of talent, but there's been a lot of principles, a lot of, I mean, it's, you know, it's a living piece of our history. Well, it is, and, and uh, also, having been a band director, uh, I'll tell you a story that I think is, is pretty fascinating when you see things go all the way around. When I was a high school uh, student at Clearwater High School, my band director was Don Hacker. And when he found out I was going to be a band director, he said, you know, uh, I got a couple of recordings that you might want to hear and keep on your, in your professional library. And uh, never thought about it at the time, but they were recordings of the Bob Barr Band at Jordan and the Hardaway Band. And I have this was re- long before you ever heard of Columbus. 1974 and 75. When I went actually when I went on to college in 76, and he gave me the recordings. And then this happens, and I thought Muskogee, Hardaway High School, Jordan, and sure enough, pulled out the recordings, and I still have them, the pink uh, cover from one of the album covers for, for uh, one of the bands. And he, said, and he made the comment, when your band sound like this, you know you will have arrived. Wow. And, you know, in the Bob Barr band still, I mean, they, they still gather. I think Dick McMichael's a part of that, yep. of that legacy. And Dick was one of the first people I met and who actually interviewed me when I came to town. He's, he's a special, special he guy. He absolutely is. That's probably one of my favorite podcasts because I just I learn stuff all the whole way through. Um, so you come up here, don't tell anybody you're here, and then you go into the process of getting hired. What? Got to figure out how to ask this. Um, just ask it. When you, okay. <laughs> when, you, when you got the offer, was there any hesitation? No. No, I'd already done the research. I knew that if the job were offered, uh, I was going to take it because I saw what, what the potential lies within Columbus. So you, you, y'all get here. Obviously, Stephanie is starting uh, college at Jacksonville State. Now, let me just back up. No hesitation on my part. My wife, the first question was, where is Columbus, Georgia? Because she did not want to go to some small 
rural town that she wouldn't, and she just didn't know. We had not really heard of Columbus, Georgia. Is but, Col- you know, when we came here, then it was... Is Columbus comparable to Lakeland in some ways? Uh, yeah, in several ways. Uh, I think it's a little more compact. Um, where, where I came from in Polk County, Florida, we had 18 different municipalities in one county. In Florida, a county is is uh, is uh, a full yeah. uh, you know thing, but there may be 18, and, and happen to be 18 municipalities, which means... 18 different police chiefs, 18 different mayors, 18 different everything. Consolidation is so, a wonderful thing, isn't it? <laughs> it really is because that was one of the most challenging things that we had to deal with was trying to deal with all the various entities within a various municipality as a school district. And Because uh, the district went through all the, went across all those borders, right? It, it did. And it was a, uh, in fact, Polk County is the largest geographic county in Polk County or in, in Florida. It's the largest right in the center of the state. And Lakeland's the city, the major city. Ma- Lakeland and Winter Haven are the two major cities. Oh, in, that, they're in the same county? They are. Wow. You pack a lunch if you're going to go across the, the county because, uh, and we had uh, about 95,000 students and uh, 165 schools. So, Winter Haven was special because it's where the Red Sox trained. And Winter Haven is where I did my internship. Wow. Winter Haven's a, a cool little town. I mean, it's a it, it, it's smaller than Lakeland, it obviously. Is. Um, so you're used to dealing with a lot of fiefdoms. Mm-hmm. So you come up here and you see a government and a county that are consolidated. Uh, was that, that had to be attractive. Oh, absolutely. Uh, again, it, it's the whole idea that you have, you, you can go to one person for something uh, in general and try and, and make connections. That's what I think is the beauty here uh, uh, as far as like with the partnerships that we're so, we're so yeah. fa- famous for here. And I say we're because my wife and I are, uh, consider ourselves to be uh, residents of, and, and going to be lifelong residents of Columbus from this point forward. You're planning to retire here? We are. Wow. Yeah, we bought a home here. We love the community. We love the people. But uh, but that's the point is you know who you can develop a relationship with, and um, and hopefully build the trust that benefits not only the the organizations you represent, but benefits the entire community. If you could say something to the to the guys, the J.R. Allens of the world, and the people who in the early 1970s fought for and achieved consolidation of the city and county governments. As somebody who operates in their, that sphere now, here we are 50, 50, 60, 50, 50 years later, 50 years later, what would you say to those, to those city leaders that pushed for and achieved consolidation of the first city in Georgia? Thank you for the vision. And thank you for your commitment to seeing it through to set up the future of this city and this particular community going forward because it, it makes all the difference. Again, I talk to uh, superintendents all over the country, um, even here in Georgia, and they don't enjoy that same relationship sometimes, even though the community may be smaller. If they have a city school system and a county school system, there's just a natural competition that is not always healthy and not beneficial for everybody in that particular area. So consolidation was a visionary move. It absolutely was. And again, that's why I would say thank you. Along the same lines, I had the uh, great fortune of being able to sit down with uh, Mr. Turner before he passed early on in my tenure. And uh, like so many other people who he he took under his wing, uh, when I had the occasion to meet with him and so on, he just had such a love for Columbus 
and such a vision. He still had things he wanted to do and was still dreaming big. And uh, that's something that you don't always see with people of that age and stature. They've done what they wanted to do. They've accomplished what they want to accomplish, and they just sit back and enjoy it. He was not that way. And there are several others like that as well that I've come across here in Columbus that I just have nothing but the utmost admiration for. Obviously, you've seen and heard the term public-private partnership your whole career. <laughs> yes. You've lived it. But when you got up here, what was different about the way Columbus approached public-private partnerships and maybe other places that you were familiar with? Well, the River Center to begin with, I mean, that was had not been built all that long before we got here. Looking at what was done downtown or uptown with the Riverwalk, all those things uh, are, were accomplished with the public-private partnerships. People putting aside their own personal benefits for the greater good. That is what is so special about Columbus. And I know a lot of people talk about that, but I can tell you from living it both personally and professionally and seeing it, as you said, from coming from outside and seeing it and, and inserting ourselves here, uh, I just want to be able to give back and contribute to that ongoing legacy of that partnership. When you see the River Center... If they took that and put that in a Lakeland or put it in a Clearwater or put it, you know, in a Fort Lauderdale, that facility would hold its own in most any city in the country, would it not? Absolutely. Um, from from an aesthetic standpoint, from an acoustical standpoint, um, every, every imaginable way. Uh, I can just tell you when I first walked into that facility, and I've had several people come from uh, Florida to come visit us, and we take them in there, and they are just thoroughly amazed from the Bill Hurd Theater on to all the other various uh, theaters uh, in, in the building. It's just an amazing facility and one that we can take great pride in. What did the music guy think when he saw 67 Steinway pianos? <laughs> well, it blew me away, and that's what also I was very proud that we are now at Rainy McCullers. We've continued that tradition, and we're a Steinway school there as well. Uh, but, yeah, Steinway is, you know, obviously the, the hallmark uh, it's the you, Cadillac. It is, and, and it's something. But, again, it's a statement. It's a statement that we want the best to become the best for our students and for our community. And um, investing in the future, investing in what we think is going to be the best part of Columbus, and I still think the best is yet to come. Let's talk about that future. You will start in-class learning um, in, what, about three, three, four, weeks? Three, three weeks? Three, yeah, yeah. three four weeks. Uh, you have been through since March of 2020. You've been through a very difficult time with COVID. Your job was one of the toughest jobs in COVID because of trying to figure out how to continue to educate children, how to keep employees safe and do all that. Let's go back to the start of COVID. Let's not. <laughs> <laughs> You're done with COVID, right? Uh, no, but you, nothing in your past prepared you for nothing as an educator. I mean, nothing as a journalist prepared me for what we did. I mean, I was putting mics on people with coat hangers. Mm. I mean, what you mean? How do you deal with something? that nobody's ever dealt with. Well, to your point, coming from Florida, I was used to hurricanes and all the aftermath of that, the preparations, the, the uh, shelters we had to have, all those different things. But that was a very short-term event in, in perspective, three, four days, and it's in, it's out, 
and we're you done. You put the roof back on the building. We move on. Yes, there's devastation and you work on, but you can immediately start to rebuild. This was such, uh, this whole 16, 17 months has been the ultimate in adaptive leadership because you could never predict what the next day was going to bring. Just looking at how quickly on March the 13th, I'll never forget it. March 13th, we got that uh, executive order that we were closing schools and we didn't have time to think about it, plan for it. It was close them now. And uh, the good You didn't see that train coming. Well, at that point, we had started some of our preparation, but one of the things that I'm really proud of our district for, we started an initiative called the Personalized Learning Initiative with the one-to-one devices back in 2017 with the support of our Board of Education to help purchase uh, devices for every student starting in 2017, which put us in a position that when this happened, we were ready to move. Now, no one was prepared to make that pivot as quickly as we had to. But you at least had a head start on some districts. We did. Oh, a lot. Because I can tell you, a lot of superintendents I've spoken with, uh, they started ordering computers as soon as that happened. And many of them are just now getting them now, a year later, 16 months later. And you had a chunk of those in-house. Yes, we did. <laughs> we certainly did. And, uh, again, that's a credit was to that us. Was that planning or luck? Um, we'd like to think it was both. Uh, we were planning, and the fact that we had it in place at the time uh, was just fortunate. But it was something that's uh, – and, and going back to when I first came, we wrote a 10-year plan uh, with short, intermediate, and long-term objectives uh, to accomplish within those uh, 10 years. And personalized learning in itself was not articulated there, but we were moving toward that whole idea of student agency, getting them uh, to have ownership of their own learning. So – this was just the device, and um, but not the, it was the device, but it wasn't the purpose. It quickly became the purpose. Well, it still is just the device. The learning is personalized based on the agency of the student. But all that said, it did give us the uh, ability to move and to pivot faster and to give students more access to, to uh, uh, instruction than many districts had because most districts who didn't have that had to do paper packets that may or may not have gotten delivered, may or may not have ever been returned. It was just a very dark time in education for a lot of people across the country. Um, And while it was not easy here by any stretch, our teachers, I just cannot say how impressed I have been with our teachers over the course of this. It has been difficult to do concurrent teaching. Some kids in class, some at home for various reasons. Uh, because we just didn't know what the, the outcome was going to be with this. And, of course, all that disrupts whenever something happens here like that or even just a weather event. I fully realized, and it, it is not lost on me, that whatever decision I make is going to have a direct or indirect uh, impact on parents, grandparents, by, but also indirectly on most of the businesses in this community by way of their parents. So I take it all very seriously, but, of course, we had to put health and safety above everything. And just like your days as an umpire, a lot of your decisions are questioned. That's just part of the job. You know, um, you make the best call, and that's one of the things early on. Um, I I told the board I was going to take this decision on rather than the board simply because I immediately put together a medical panel of some of the best people I know in this community who have got expertise in pediatric medicine, epidemiologists, you name it. You had Asante on that board. I did, Asante Hiltz, Dr. Townsend, uh, yes, uh, Dr. Ramey, Dr. Cheek, very respected in their professions. You had a combination of public and private health care providers. did. 
And uh, they were gracious and have been gracious with their time and their expertise ever since, and I just can never thank them enough. But because of that, uh, I felt uh, very good about the advice I was receiving because they were taking it from a local position, uh, couched in what we got as far as guidelines from CDC or Department of Health. Um, but all of that came down to how it affected our community and our students and our families. And uh, to this day, we are still making those decisions based on that input because if it's an educational one, I feel pretty comfortable making those decisions after 42 years in the profession. Uh, but if it's medical, I'm going to rely on the experts, uh, expertise of those people who uh, are, are the experts in their field, and, and they have been. I just can't say thank you enough for that. Some superintendents try to go their own, go with the, on their own, and kind of go with CDC. How important was that panel of doctors and health providers to you? Oh, critical! It was absolutely essential and critical because, again, I could run scenarios past them. I'd say, "Well, what about this?" And they would say, "Well, yes, but have you thought about that?" Or um, they were just very good about telling us what the data meant, what what uh, how it was affecting our local community, how it could affect our local community what things to look for, and they could help us kind of predict as best as anyone, as well as anybody could, predict what might be coming around the corner and be on the lookout for. You had people from both St. Francis Emory Healthcare and uh, Piedmont Columbus. Giving us advice along the way, yes. Were these people a sounding board or were they partners in your decisions? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, So... I mean, there was no blueprint for this, no. so this was a this was a build the plane while you fly it situation. Right. Well, again, um, <clears throat> from March on, we struggled through the remainder of that school year, and probably the one of the greatest disappointments in my professional career was the fact that we could not hold a safe graduation for that graduating class of that first year in twenty uh, in, in twenty twenty class of twenty twenty twenty. Uh, I will always regret that we couldn't do that. I wouldn't change the decision at this point because based, again, on the information at the time, it was the right decision. Uh, But it still doesn't make it any easier for those kids and their families, and I I do regret that from that standpoint. That said, though, from that point forward, our staff at the district level worked diligently to put together training for our teachers to be able to implement the um, online virtual class concurrently. Our teachers, we talked to many of them, put together a teacher advisory committee um, and, and talked to some of our Harvard fellows and some of those uh, great folks. And they said, look, as hard as it's going to be, we want to have our kids. We want to be able to work with our kids. We don't want to have kids back and forth coming from one teacher to another every time there's a quarantine. We'd rather do this. And I just cannot tell you um, how hard that was but how much better it was for our students in the long run than other places where they may have said, well, you're going to just go uh, into paper packets or you're going to have to have just, we're going to go back and forth between virtual and in person. As we get ready to start a new school year, what do you say to those men and women who teach in the Muskogee County School District who have survived the last 15 months? What? What's your me- what's your message to them going to be in when y'all gather to y'all do a big conclave of all the teachers at the same well time? we don't do that any longer uh, we can't can't do the uh, haven't done that for several years because of the size and the cost and one thing or another but the message is the same um, first of all there's sometimes thank you is all you can give 
Uh, we've tried to show different ways. Our board has tried to pay, um, do some stipends for our teachers to show our, uh, not just our teachers too, because it's important to remember, in addition to our teachers, we had support personnel who were putting themselves on the line every day, delivering but, meals and Bus so drivers. On. Bus drivers. Uh, you name it. There wasn't a, a, a job that didn't do uh, something above and beyond their regular dimensions to try and uh, support the teachers and the students in the classrooms and virtually. We had people going to uh, homes trying to make sure that um, they had not only meals, but also making sure they had connectivity and, and assisting any way they can from a technical assistance uh, aspect. So a lot of things people didn't know or see were happening behind the scenes to make that all happen. So uh, while it wasn't perfect, it was a, a much better scenario than it could have been and was in many place, other places. Early on in COVID, I was complaining to the mayor, um, to Mayor Henderson, about some situations that were happening, and he stopped me. In the middle of the sentence, he said, Chuck, listen to me. He said, there will be a day when every single one of us will be judged for our actions and our decisions in this crisis. And this was very early on, probably late March, early April. He said, that day's coming. It ain't today, or it isn't today, but that day's coming, and everyone will be judged, and he said, including you. And he got me thinking really quick about the way I reported COVID, the way I looked at it. I was sitting there thinking that this was just do what you've always done. If you did what you always were, always did, you were not going to make it. You had to think differently. Now, I think we're getting close to that day when all of us can be judged, the media. The school, the school superintendents, the teachers, the mayor, the public health officials. How do you think that judgment day should look? I mean, in 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 ways. I mean, how should this after action and judgment day is too harsh, but how should the after action on this look? Well, I can just tell you how it's looking from our perspective and from my perspective. We are looking at what has happened, what went well, what didn't go well, and as I, as I told my staff. If we go back to doing everything the way we did before March of 2019, we will have squandered an opportunity. We've got to take what we've learned from this and evolve and make things better, whether it's through personalized learning. We've already learned some things about last year. One of the things we, we staggered the start of school for pre-K, first and second grade students. We're doing that again this year because it was so successful and our teachers and our parents uh, loved it and felt like it was so great to get those kids acclimated for their first uh, day of school. So there are things we're going to learn and take from this that I think is, is really important. So I think from the standpoint of judgment, people always have an opinion one way or the other. I think it, the best way to look at it is what can we learn and do differently going forward that we would not have done had that not been, um, had the pandemic not happened. As troubling and terrible as it was, there's always something you can pull from a situation that can make you better and stronger. As a leader, would you have rather faced this pandemic earlier in your career or later like you have? That's an interesting question. I'd like to think things happen when they're supposed to. And um, I think it happened now because I had the experience. I had um, the people in place. Um, so I think things happen for a very specific reason. I'm, I'm a big, I'm a person of faith and I just believe that things happen the way they're supposed to in the order they're supposed to. And so I'd like to believe that this is the way it's supposed to be. And it doesn't matter what I think, 
And I think this is the way it was supposed to be. Will the 21-22 school year be a normal year? I don't know what normal is, quite frankly, at this point. I think we're going to be developing a new normal. That's kind of an overused term, but I do think we're going to be evolving. I think um, we have an opportunity uh, going forward with some of the things we've learned, as I shared earlier. Uh, So I think it will be a good year. It'll be a different year, and it'll be so much better than what we had last year. I think people will be relieved. I think we're going to have to get through this next opening of school and see how things evolve over the next several weeks uh, moving forward. Uh, I am hopeful that uh, the vaccine and other measures will help to mitigate uh, the spread and keep the illness down, that we can start getting kids back in school on a routine basis without the worry of quarantine and those uh, various things that have decimated some of our families. And, uh, but I do think that we're looking at a uh, recovery period um, in, in terms of educationally, probably three to five years in some cases to, to uh, recapture some. Of, and I think we've, we think about a lot of times the pandemic as being learning loss. I'd like for people to think about lost learning time. Sometimes they just didn't even, it wasn't the fact that they lost learning, they didn't get it to begin with. I think about the ones I really, the children I really worry about are the ones who are just starting to learn how to read when the pandemic hit. They're, they're, that critically important skill was interrupted. And that's not just in Muskogee or Georgia or United States, that's across the world. So we're going to have to think differently We've taken some of the funds that have come, and we'll, we're, we're building a three-year plan uh, with the money we received to make sure we have— You received a lot of money from the we, federal— We did receive, and without it, we would have been in what's serious the, trouble. What's the number? Right about $114 million okay. when it's all put together with the three different CARES Acts. And, uh, but it's just the summer program we did this past summer, which was absolutely another great example of what's come out of this uh, pandemic— we probably would never have thought about a summer learning experience like we had this past year had we not been forced to or had because we had the funds to do it. But we had the best learning experience. I have not had one teacher, one student, or one parent say anything negative about the summer learning. Um, there may be, but I've been receiving unsolicited emails, which is highly rare <laughs> when it's positive. You hear when things go yeah. bad. But extremely positive. But they re-engaged kids. Kids had fun. I went and visited schools. Teachers enjoyed what they were doing. So that funding is going to be used not just for this year, but for next year and the year after because it will be a long-term recovery. Now, um, I think we can catch some kids up very quickly, but I think that for others it will take longer based on whatever situation or circumstance they find themselves in. I saw where some districts are giving parents the option to hold a child back if the child would have been a third grader or a fifth grader last year to the and maybe have they passed the third or fifth virtually they're giving them the option to hold that kid back based on the parents judgment call are y'all doing that or have y'all thought about that well we we haven't talked about it explicitly because we haven't had the uh, question posed to us because i think at this point we're looking at how we're going to move them all forward because whether a kid is uh needs to be First of all, retention in itself is not a great strategy unless it's done early on in their career. The older they get, uh, it's not as effective. The research is very clear. Retention is not a great strategy the older they get, and it costs more to try and fix it. So we're much better off to keep the kids moving them through and really work on it. But this is where we're going to take some of our funds 
uh, and ultimately if the board approves and, and uh, we get it approved by the state, is to give schools, because every school is its own unique DNA. We have a basic parameter that we use for, for our entire school district because we are a school district, not a district of schools. We are a school district, so we're going to have some set parameters. But within those parameters, uh, the schools are going to be able to apply for uh, funds to deal with their own unique DNA in their school. Every school is different. Kids in the schools are different, and they all have different needs. So I want to give them that opportunity to uh, provide the funding to do those unique and innovative ideas. So if a principal thinks an extra math class for fifth graders is a way to spend some of that money, and I'm being hypothetical now, obviously, but you're going to give some of the principals the autonomy to kind of help make some of those decisions? I'll give you an example. Uh, one principal at the elementary level has said, you know, my parents have expressed concern that they want to make sure their children are doing well and therefore, they would, uh, they're considering asking for us to fund an evening school where the parents and the kids can come in and work from, say, 6 to 8 at night. Pretty innovative for elementary school. That's, wonder, if that's that what they want to do and there's enough interest in doing that, we'll try it. There's nothing wrong with trying it. We're... getting toward the end of this thing and one of the things I want to ask you is COVID changed all of us every single one of us if you say COVID didn't change you you're lying how did COVID change you personally professionally how did COVID change you made me really appreciate my wife and my family and the little things that sometimes we took for granted. Just being able to go downtown, take a walk, go out and pick up something at the store, go to church and, and have and worship with people. We really came to appreciate those. The most surreal day for me during the whole pandemic was Easter Sunday morning of uh, um, 2020 and I don't know what the date was. I'm assuming it was an April date. But I walked downtown with my dog and walked by all the churches, St. Luke. I walked past the Catholic Church. I walked past First Pres, Sad. First Baptist. That was the day it hit me that we are not, I mean, we're not in anything that's even anywhere near normal. Right. And it just, it was just the visual at, you know, 10, 30, 11 o'clock, you know, I think a couple of them flowered crosses, but, you know, you didn't have the people in their new outfits. You didn't have the seersucker. You didn't have the choir wedding singing. No, you, I mean, COVID changed us all. Mm -hmm. Definitely, definitely did. And the, the, the shame will be if we went through all that and we don't learn and get better from it and appreciate what we have. That would be, in my view, a travesty. Amen. Well, we're at the point now where I've been doing this with guests now all the way through. Uh, Dylan Hansen, my director, he likes to watch this because he has no idea what they're going to ask me, how I'm going to get put on, a, put on the spot. But uh, we'll call, I call it Turn the Table. So um, I've been asking you questions, and you've been very thoughtfully answering them for the last hour. Do you have anything you want to ask me? Only one. 
<laughs> Come at me with a couple. <laughs> no. I, 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 could, I got three and a half minutes. Well, you're a journalist. I'd like to know who, with whom would you like to have dinner, past or present, any figure in history, with whom would you like to have dinner and why? I've never, I've, you know, that's a cliche question, but I've never been asked it. Um, it's a good question. If I could have dinner with anybody, I would like to have dinner with two people, past, both past. I would like to sit down at a table with Abraham Lincoln and Martin Luther King Jr. Because I think what those two men went through in very different times, but some of the very same circumstances, is very relative to what we're going through now as a nation and in this country. I would love to talk and hear, I would love to hear their conversation because the history of what happened with the Civil War, then the Civil Rights Movement, you know, what we're having right now in our country seems to be a continuation of both of those events. That's, you know, that's my take on it. That may be popular or unpopular with some people, but that's how I see it. And I would like to talk with the two key figures of those two historical times. Does that make sense? It does. It does. An interesting juxtaposition of periods and perspectives. We're, you know, we're in an interesting time. I mean, to be a leader... You know, because you put yourself out. I mean, you've got pretty thick skin. You got more thicker skin than I do. I, your job's one of the few jobs in this town I wouldn't touch with a ten foot pole. I've heard that a time or two. You could pay me enough to do your heard job. Heard that too. Because, you know, the thing about your job to me that is so difficult is you can't please everybody, and you're not going to. You know, you know, and you know, and you've got to deal with it all the way through. And it's just, it's, yours is a tough job. Well, Chuck, I'll just tell you, and I don't mean to sound trite in this, but I've never accepted criticism from anybody I wouldn't accept, uh, ask for advice. Say and that again, Dr. Lewis. I don't really listen to criticism from people from whom I would not seek advice. Is that how you survived nine years here? Well, there are people I, I highly respect and regard. And um, those are the people I seek advice from. And if they have a concern or share an issue with me, that gives me cause for pause. But by and large, I try to make a decision. And I, one thing that's always been good, and I said this just last night at the board work session, I have always maintained that I'm going to make decisions that I would make for my own child and even more importantly, for my prenatally gifted grandson. <laughs> so so you, 31,000 kids, you're making the decisions as the decision as if they're your own. I mean, obviously you can't put that all no. in one bucket, but that's the way you look at it. I, I try to make decisions based on the research and what I know is in the best interest educationally sound but always the litmus for me is 
would I want that decision for my own child or grandson in this case? Is it the right decision? Is it morally, ethically right for them and for their educational future? And I know that, again, sounds somewhat cliche or trite, but it really is one of the filters I use, and it's usually the final filter. And we didn't get to the – you have a lot of challenges. I mean, you have a lot of challenges. I mean, because not every kid's the same, not every teacher's the same. I mean, there it becomes individualized in, ver- in various things. Well, um, But I, the best is yet to come. Why do you say that? The reason I say that is because I see the potential. I see what we've done the last several years. All the metrics are going in the right direction in every area. Uh, we're going to have to recalibrate going forward. But I see nothing but bright future ahead. We've got challenges, as you said, and maybe it's another conversation for another time. I'd but, love to have that conversation. But I can tell you, I, the reason, one of the reasons I'm here, beside all the things we talked about earlier, is that I know people care about this community. I know people care about their kids. And um, I see there are going to be some things coming that we'll be making announcement of in the future, uh, in the next few weeks, maybe a month ahead. Uh, that's going to put us in the trajectory for great things for our community. And I look forward to to, uh, helping that come to fruition. Well, I can't wait till those decisions are announced and to sort of see what they are. I think that would be very interesting. And another thing I can't wait for is maybe in a year down the road, I can buy you a hot dog at the Otis Spencer Athletic Complex. I think that is going to be a crown in the jewel of the city. New athletic complex being built off Cedar Road near Spencer High, near Spencer High School. Um, that that athletic it's going to be a state of the art athletic complex in the heart of South Columbus. Well, again, it's just one more testament to this community and its support of public education and um, our youth. Well, our guest has been Dr. David Lewis. Dr. Lewis is the superintendent of the Muskogee County School District. Dr. Lewis, we appreciate you being with us. we got to do a little business cleanup right now, so hang with us for just a second. I want to thank my buddy Dylan here. Dylan Hansen is our uh, director. Dylan is uh, Dylan uh, sits through. This is the double day for him because he does the sports and then does us, uh, so he gets a lot of podcasting today. Um I want to tell you that you can see the Chuck Williams Show every Tuesday night, live streaming on WRBL.com. And coming soon, okay, Dylan, let's let's just say we hope to be making an announcement soon. Yes, right? we do hope to be making an announcement soon. Uh, and then that will get it in the podcast realm, and we will be dumping about 16, 18 episodes and then it, when we put this on a podcast format. So... Hopefully, there'll be a lot for people to listen to. Also, you can follow me on Twitter at Chuck Williams. I was on Twitter early, and no no zeros, no numbers. It's at Chuck Williams. Uh, Facebook, Chuck Williams WRBL. And on Instagram, Chuck Williams 0999. Again, we want to thank Dr. Lewis for being our guest and particularly enjoyed the COVID conversations and where, where we are right now. And... One thing I want to say, I want to leave you with, and I'll leave is pretty similar to what I say at the end of all these episodes. When you're out there in your world going about your daily task, be kind to everybody because you have no clue what the other guy's carrying in his bag right now. We're coming out of an unprecedented situation and we're trying to go into a new norm. And just be kind. 
really be kind. And again, thank you for listening to the Chuck Williams Show, and we'll be back next Tuesday Tuesday night, and uh, we have scheduled General Major General Pat Donahoe from Fort Benning. So uh, we're in the heavy hitter version of the Chuck Williams Show right now. Thanks for listening, guys.